The following podcast contains adult themes, gritty details from true crimes, and naughty language. Listener discretion is advised. There's no time now. I began five years ago, in secret, working all night, every night, right into the dawn. A thousand experiments, a thousand failures, and then, at last, the great, wonderful day. Hello, all you spooky nerds and curious consumers of very weird but very true stories. Welcome to Human Fuckery, the only podcast that dives fully into history's colon to show everyone what's hiding deep inside. My name is Edward, and I am here with my co-host Kimberly, reporting to you from America's most colorfully fucked up city, New Orleans, Louisiana. Kimberly, why don't you tell everyone what we're doing today and what exactly the format of this new show no one asked for is? Happy to. This is a show by and for people who are fascinated by the underbelly of the world we're all sharing. The current reality we're living through is epically screwed up, but it becomes a little easier to accept when we understand that things have, in fact, always been epically screwed up. I first discovered this as a baby journalist in New York decades ago. I had learned one version of history in school, read and reported the news daily, and so I thought I understood how the world works, but I quickly discovered that history and the news are most often written by PR professionals and executives who don't actually want people to know how messy we, as people, truly are. Which is something you, a guy about to become a doctor of psychology, already knows. Correct. As a learned scholar, I think it's a public service to let everyone know that people basically look like the men's bathroom at a Golden Corral buffet inside. Exactly. But there's already billions of shows out there where the professionals hop on Google or crack open a history book and start reading aloud into a microphone. So we wanted to do something a little different. Um, Here's how this show works. Each episode, we're assigned a topic. We're given one week to dig up and research a true, it must be true, story which fits the assigned theme. We get another week to record, underscore, and add nifty sound effects to these stories. Then we present our stories to some judges who will declare one of us the winner. Now, listeners should understand that judges have been forced onto the podcast against their will. These official judges can be overruled by social media comments. So if listeners vehemently disagree with a decision, all they have to do is hop online and passionately complain until the decision is overturned. It works exactly the way American democracy does. Since this is our very first episode, we're going to test out this whole power to the people voting by not having any judges and just letting y'all decide whether Edward or I is victorious. I love it. You can really trust the integrity of the process this way. Humankind gets itself into all kinds of fuckery. Some of it totally explainable and others baffling, bizarre, just never to be explained. And it's the latter that we're competing to tell you all about this week. Mm, 
we threw a dozen potential topics into an ancient, mercury-tainted top hat from a thrift store on Royal Street. Then we had our intern, Gary the Ghoul, use his corporeal claws to pick one. The subject of today's podcast is... Mysterious Vanishing. The subject of this week's podcast is vanishings or unexplained disappearances. Now, from my perspective, there are few more terrifying concepts. The idea that someone could exist as an integral part of our everyday lives and... Well, yet somehow, in an instant, they could be removed without explanation or evidence. We're left not only with an absence of what was, but in its place. We find the questions that will drive us until the end of our days. What happened? How? Why? Did they suffer? Are they still out there? Who could have done this? Now, the story I'm going to share with you is just over 61 years old. Yet, it continues to make international headlines with each passing year. Extensive photographs and journals have been discovered from those involved in this case, yet somehow it remains unsolved. In the winter of 1959... Nine Russian students, graduates from the Ural Polytechnic Institute, set out on a ski-hiking expedition through the Ural Mountains. They were all experienced grade two hikers with ski tour experience. They would receive their grade three certification upon returning from their voyage. This, this was the highest level certification available in the Soviet Union. So... Obviously, they knew what they were doing and they were prepared. They were prepared for unforeseen events. They even stashed supplies in a valley to be retrieved on the way back from their journey. And on January 27th, they endeavored out into blinding white snow. They endeavored to reach a mountain seven miles away. But they were in good spirits, playful even. Upon their embarkation, one student in the group drew up a mock newspaper headline that ominously stated, According to the latest information, abominable snowmen live in the northern Urals. Some say he was right. En route to their destination, the hikers became sidetracked by a snowstorm. And on February 2nd, they established a campsite on the eastern slope of Peak 1079, otherwise known to the indigenous people of the region as Dead Mountain. Unfortunately, that would be their last night alive. But the details of what took place, they remain a mystery. The last recorded journal entry from that evening stated... It's hard to imagine such a comfort on the ridge with shrill, howling winds hundreds of kilometers away from human settlements. Now this description set the stage for what will seem like an impossibility. What comes next 
It's not a vanishing in the traditional sense. But what was discovered has left us with each of those questions previously mentioned. The students that went up that mountain were not the students that came back down. They were missing for weeks. Eventually, a search and rescue team would venture into the mountains. They would finally come upon the campsite. Without much hope, the initial assumption was that they had fallen victim to maybe an avalanche or, or maybe they were frozen in their tents. But as authorities approached the remnants of what was left behind, all evidence suggested something much more chaotic, much more gruesome had occurred. Instead of finding corpses frozen, their tent had been forcibly torn open, but from the inside. Evidence suggested the trekkers had emerged from their tent in the dead of night and simply left their belongings behind. Their rucksacks, their boots, they were all lined up neatly in a row. Scattered footsteps would be discovered nearby, leading toward a dense forest, but disappearing after 500 meters. Investigators would venture out nearly a mile before discovering the first two bodies, both male. According to meteorological data from the time, temperatures in the vicinity of the skiers' campsite dropped precipitously from minus 11 degrees Celsius to as low as minus 25 degrees Celsius on the night of February 1st, 1959. Wind speeds are estimated to have reached between 8 and 16 meters per second, with gusts even higher. Now, what does this mean? It means without adequate protection, frostbite, hypothermia, death, they were virtually guaranteed and within minutes. But despite this, both bodies were discovered barefoot. They were dressed only in their underwear, found at the edge of the forest near the remains of a fire. The next three bodies, two males and a female, they were found between the fire and the tent, dressed similarly, or I should say, undressed. Now, without explaining what might have spurred them to essentially end their own lives, the inquest concluded simply that, well, all five had died of hypothermia. Good guess. But two months later, the remaining four members of the party were discovered in a forest ravine, not far from the first two bodies. Official investigators who, while baffled, concluded there had been no foul play and that the students were killed by a, quote, elemental force that the tourists were not able to overcome. The case was closed. The findings were archived as secret, as was routine in the Soviet Union at the time. And then 29 years later, the shit hit the fan. In 1990, a Dyatlov newspaper published a story in which Lev Ivanov, the lead investigator on the 1959 inquiry, stated the students were killed by a UFO. That's right, an unidentified flying object. Oh boy. 
apparently, the elemental forces were a bit more intentional than initially conveyed. Flipping through the now declassified documents of the original investigation, the small details begin to paint a very different picture of what might have taken place that night. It's bizarre enough that these experienced mountaineers would just take a walk into the frozen tundra in nothing more than their skivvies. But when the first two bodies were discovered, there was skin tissue on a nearby pine tree that one of the hikers seemed intent on climbing for some reason. And one of his fingers had been chewed off down to the knuckle. Now, the first female they had discovered shortly thereafter had an enormous bright red bruise on the side of her body that looked as though it had been inflicted by a baton or a stick of some sort. One of the other gentlemen found in that first set of five, he was sporting a nice skull fracture. Then, there were the hikers found in the ravine. One member had a crushed skull and an oddly twisted neck. Two others had major chest fractures. The force required to cause such damage would have been extremely high, comparable to the force of a car crash. However, notably, the bodies had no external wounds associated with the bone fractures. It's as if they had been subjected to some high level of pressure. And then there's the matter of the last hiker. Autopsy reports state the second female hiker had her tongue ripped out. She was also missing some soft tissue around her eyes, her eyebrows, her nose bridge, her upper lip, her cheekbone. Oh, and both of her eyes, they were gone. So let's try to zip this fuckery up into one nice big bag of holy shit. All the bodies they found were also covered in high levels of radiation. To the extent they appeared tan at their funerals and their hair had turned gray. Now, as told by a woman named Sanka, a local villager still alive today, one evening... In February 1959, she was out collecting firewood when she noticed something strange in the sky. Quote, We were coming back from the forest, and we could see the village ahead of us, she says. This bright, burning object appeared. It was wider at the front, narrow at the back, with a tail, and there were sparks flying off of it. Perhaps it was a comet, but Sanka says the village elders, they also witnessed this burning object, and they warned it was a bad omen, something harmful. So, were the mysterious lights in the night sky celestial, or were they man-made? The students' parents believed that their deaths were somehow related to the Soviet military. Maybe missile testing had gone wrong. The families were told by government officials simply that you will never know the truth, so stop asking questions. 
Nonetheless, the cat was out of the bag. By the 2000s, the nation demanded answers. Eventually, the world would be gripped by this deepening mystery. As of recent years, the story that the Russian government is running with, the hikers were simply killed by an avalanche. Despite the fact that the location of the incident did not have any obvious signs of an avalanche having taken place. But this, this is what's most eerie about all of this when taken into context. The footprint patterns leading away from the tent were inconsistent with someone, let alone a group of nine people, running in panic from either real or imagined danger. In fact, all the footprints leading away from the tent and towards the woods were consistent with individuals who were simply walking at a normal pace, a leisurely stroll to certain death. Their bodies came home, but the truth behind these gruesome deaths, well, they're unfortunately still out there. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, all you spooky nerds. And also normal people with, I don't know, social skills, an air fryer, whatever it is that makes normal people normal. We accept all kinds here. And we also accept all kinds over on our Patreon. Mm, Nice segue. We get it. Everyone's broke. Everyone's got a Patreon and no one wants to fill out yet another online payment form. But if you're listening to this show, then you'll actually love our Patreon. It's got all the best parts of the podcast. Weird stories from history's colon, underscoring and silly sound effects, dark psychology. And less of the other leftover stuff. Us, specifically. Less of us yammering. Every month, subscribers get either one or two, you get to pick, slickly produced, guest-free, and banter-free episodes of Secret Storytime, our series covering wild stories and case studies ripped from the annals of human history. Subscribers also get long-form written stories, in case you're someone who still likes to read, early and ad-free access to the usual monthly human fuckery competition show, and the ability to pick what we'll write about or do new episodes. Episodes on next. You can literally send us a link being like, tell this story, and we'll go, okay. It's the best way to make sure we can keep doing this show. And every subscription helps us keep Gary the Ghoul housed. It's hard to find a landlord who'll accept a demonic hell spawn with a torture fetish in this market. You can help us keep Gary housed and this show alive by heading over to www.patreon.com backslash human fuckery. Just pick a tier, enjoy the dozens of already released episodes of Secret Storytime, and wait till you see what we drop next month because, yeah, it's some entertaining fuckery. Oh my god. Oh my god. What'd you think? You... I feel like you're cheating a little because this was supposed to be a vanishing story and we know where the we know where your people are. We know where the bodies are. They're dead. I, I think I specifically explained this in the narrative, <laughs> right? It's not a vanishing in a traditional sense, mm-hmm. but like I said, those kids that came down the mountain, they were not the same ones that went up that mountain. 
Oh my god, the white hair is a especially fantastic narrative yeah. touch. It's super creepy. Um, yeah. I, I, I want to give you kudos as a researcher and a storyteller. I did not see the UFO angle coming, like at all. Uh, neither did I. <laughs> but it seems like neither did the hikers. So yeah, yeah, yeah. This it, is dark. Uh, still to this day, no idea what's happening. The investigation is actually still open as of 2020, but the Russian government is only considering three possible options, which are avalanche, um, hurricane. I don't know where they got that one from. <laughs> And uh, I can't remember what the other one was, but it was something innocuous. Not to say that their deaths were innocuous, but it had nothing to do with the supernatural whatsoever. Like logging? Yeah, you know, whatever. You know, despite the fact that the lead investigator on the inquiry, first and foremost, put forth, this is a UFO attack. These people were killed by aliens. The government's like, okay, no. 75 investigators put forth various theories, and they will only consider three. And once they decide... It is case closed forever. Wow. Uh, and so how is this one like still active in the true crime community? Are there like active message boards where people are still trying to put this one together? Absolutely. Absolutely. This mm. is not the first time the story has been told. And I am positive this will not be the last time this story is told. And hopefully there's more information. Oh, my God. I hope we get to revisit this in a future episode. I'm sure we will. Okay. So mine is nothing like yours. I, I went a little bit more literal and a little bit more local. Mine's a mindset in just nice suburban New England. Mm. It's a it's a very different kind of story. It's not the Ural Mountains, but I'll take it. Okay, cool. Let's check it out. Lorene Ron was tired. Finals were approaching at Parkside Junior High in Manchester, New Hampshire, and as one of the smart kids, she was expected to perform well. She moved her wavy chestnut hair away from big, round, blue eyes, a heart-shaped gold ring on one hand catching the light as she tried to continue reading. She was alone in the modest third-floor apartment on Merrimack Street. Her mother, Judith, was dating a professional tennis player who had a tournament out of town that weekend. Lorene liked him well enough, but... She hadn't been up to traveling alone yet again with the adult lovebirds to sit in the spectator's stands. Now 14 years old, she'd celebrated her birthday just three weeks before, the privilege of staying home alone was still novel and welcome. Besides, it was spring break, which meant all her friends were home too. Ready to test out some youthful disobedience, Lorene decided to enjoy this brief window of glorious alone time. Within a few short hours, she, a female friend from school, and a 21-year-old male acquaintance were draped around the living room, sipping cold beer and cheap wine together. Their giggles as the alcohol worked through their bodies could be heard by neighbors, who were unbothered by the sedate meetup of teenagers next door. At one point, the young man, his name has never been released, thought he heard voices in the hallway and, assuming it was Lorene's mom ready to bust them for their bad behavior, ran out the back entrance of the apartment, refusing to come back. As he started tipsily back home, he heard Lorene lock the door behind him. It was well after midnight when Judith returned home from the tennis tournament, weary from a weekend of driving and competition nerves. 
She keyed into the building, pausing for her eyes to adjust to a surprising darkness. The hallway, usually illuminated to prevent injuries on the stairs, was dim. Looking up, she noted that every light bulb had been unscrewed. The shadows on the first floor merged and intensified as they met those from the second and then the third, where the bulbs were disabled as well. In that eerie darkness, Judas made her way to the apartment door, keys ready, but the door was already unlocked. She stepped in and, finding nothing amiss, headed straight to Lorene's room, ready to remind her not to be so careless. But her daughter already was asleep, hair messy upon the pillow. Judith locked the front door, took off her makeup, changed then checked the back door on the way to bed. That door was also unlocked. Something felt wrong. Judith went to her daughter's room to rouse her and discovered the body in the bed was not her child, but the female school friend. Lorene was not with her or anywhere else in the apartment. Her brand new sneakers, a birthday gift, were still in the living room person its place on the wall. Judith asked the friend where Loreen was. She's not on the couch, was the sleepy girl's reply. The police who responded to Judith's panicked call around 4 a.m. were not overly concerned. Teenagers ran away all the time. But Judith, dread gnawing like a cold beast in her belly, knew this to be impossible. Her daughter, the honor student, was no all-night party animal, nor would she leave without her shoes, ID, and money, and the unscrewed light bulbs. It was too odd. Lorene did not come home the next morning, or the next. She never came home again. On October 1st, 1980, Judith sat alone at the apartment, slouched from the weight of chronic grief, holding the phone bill numbly. Her credit card had been charged for three calls made in California in July, 12 weeks after Loreen vanished. To make these long-distance calls, a person had to have and know her telephone PIN number. This was a thing in the 1980s. And no one else did, except Loreen. Judith had never been to and did not know anyone in California. Nor had Loreen, whose room was still empty down the hall. With some sleuthing, Judith discovered two of the calls were placed from a Santa Monica motel to another motel located in Santa Ana. The third was to a teen sexual assistance hotline. Upon calling the hotline herself, Judith reached Dr. Z, a man who explained he helped teenage girls in trouble get answers. She and the police begged him for information about whether he'd spoken to Lorene, but he claimed he had no recollection of the call or her. Judith woke up on her first Christmas without her daughter, without leads or hope. So when the phone rang that day, she didn't leap up or rush to it. She just answered it and was met with silence. Hello, 
she asked the receiver again. Breathing, and then a dial tone, were her only response. It was a call she would receive every few months and every single Christmas day until she moved from New Hampshire to Florida several years later and changed her number. She had never received the strange calls until Lorene vanished. 1985 brought an unexpected new lead in the case. Judith, unable to release the feeling her daughter was both alive and in trouble, hired a private investigator to pursue loose ends the Manchester detectives had left hanging. A troubling narrative about Dr. Z and the teen helpline emerged soon thereafter. According to Lorene's aunts and uncles, they learned Dr. Z was not an OBGYN or women's health specialist, but a plastic surgeon in California. He not only ran the sex helpline, but sometimes hosted the teenage runaways who called the line for help, housing them in his home. He did this with the knowledge of his wife, a fashion designer, and the help of his wife's friend, Annie Sprinkle, a model who doubled as a New York City prostitute and adult film actress. No details exactly on how Annie helped have been published or shared by the Ron family, though some true crime community members watched every single Annie Sprinkle porn in hope. Hope might be the wrong word, but you get it of seeing Lorene in the background. As an aside, Annie Sprinkle is still alive and well today. Since ending her 80s porn career, she's reportedly earned a doctorate in human sexuality. Her website, www.anniesprinkle.org, bills her as, quote, the first porn star to earn a PhD, end quote, and an educator who devotes herself to, quote, environmental art from an eco-sexual perspective. You can watch her hour-long documentary, Sluts and Goddesses, How to Be a Sex Goddess in 101 Easy Steps, for a fee on her streaming service. In 1986, Judith's investigator learned one of the motels on her mysterious phone bill had been used by a child pornographer to film illicit sex acts. The child pornographer used the alias, Dr., raising all the red flags about the plastic surgeon operating a teen sex hotline and hosting underage runaway girls in his home at the same time in the same state. But according to the Charlie Project, an online cold case community, neither private investigators nor police have been able to link Dr. Z, in any legally meaningful way anyway, to the reported child pornography occurring at that seedy motel. As noted by journalist Brenda Thornlow, two other beautiful young women disappeared in 1980 in the Manchester, New Hampshire area, both bearing some resemblance to Lorene. One was 25-year-old Denise Denot, who resided just two blocks from Lorene and Judith. The other, a 13-year-old named Rachel Garden, lived the next town over, but shared the two other girls' features. Manchester police never pursued any of these disappearances in connection with one another. They didn't seem to pursue any of them all that hard, period. No leads carved a path to Lorene, dead or alive. In the 2000s, Judith began consulting psychics, desperate for any closure. 
Not one of them has said they see her passed away, she told the Sun Sentinel in 2008. It's a mother's instinct, too. I've never, ever felt her passed away in my heart. I say my prayers faithfully, and I trust the Lord that he's going to bring her back to me. The 40-year anniversary of Lorene's vanishing recently passed. While her mother has since died, aunts and uncles still alive in Manchester say they remain hopeful that Lorene is still out there, that she may someday return to give their family the peace it has lacked since she disappeared without a trace, leaving her brand new birthday sneakers and broken hearts behind. Okay. Um. Oh, Loreen. Mm. Biggest bummer. Mom dies before we figure out whether or not Loreen is still out there. I know. And it's like there's all of these articles from the time she disappeared in 1980 up until the point where she died. And it's like every five or ten years, some reporter would be like, oh, I wonder whatever happened to that girl. Let's mm. drag her mom out and make her do another interview about her daughter who's still missing. Like it's 20 or 30 years worth of Oh my god! Like you can tell that this is yeah. this consumed her life after it happened. Uh, and, and I'm sure any time this thing is dredged up, it gives her like a new sense of hope that with renewed interest in the story, that that you know something will break, something will come of it. And then every single time she has to go through a, a new grieving process of okay, the story came up and then it died down again and. Nothing came of it. Nothing was revealed. The girl is just, well, a woman at this point is just still out there or not. Who knows? I have a confession to make. Give it to me. I would do almost anything to have Annie Sprinkle as a guest and just ask her so many questions about <laughs> so many things. I don't believe that she was involved in anything that happened to Lorene. Uh, she has a fascinating career well, going why? on right now. Why don't you think she was involved? I I don't know. It's just like a weird... If she's involved in the whole Dr. Z uh, housing runaway girls freak show, like what? Why? Because they... Okay, so apparently investigators did look into Annie Sprinkle, both like amateur sleuths and true crime community members uh -huh. and private investigators and the police, and no one could find any connection between her and the seedy motel, yeah. the child porn, anything. It was like she could have just been this really groovy, sex-positive girl who was like, I'm going to help these teenage runaways. And like maybe she was very genuinely helping. Mm. Or maybe she was facilitating some nefarious thing where like a plastic surgeon rearranged the faces of, of girls and then like sold them into sex slavery. I don't know, but... I, yeah, I think the, the police was spearheaded by Chief Wiggum. It, they didn't seem very interested in pursuing any of the leads, but, you know, hey, I, th I'm just going by the story that you've told. I'm not an expert on, on Loreen or or the details of this case, but it, it just seems like there's a lot of, like, open threads out there that just weren't really pulled that hard. Yes, yeah, and what's really sad is when you're doing research on it, you will find her, uh, Loreen's, you know, missing persons ad in papers 
all across the country wow. for decades, but you won't find any new, like, there's no new information on the case. There's no, we had this break. There's just her <sighs> being aged older and older by computer programs, like what she could look like now. It's heartbreaking. It's really heartbreaking. Did you ever see the movie Vanishing? No. With Kiefer Sutherland? No. Sandra Bullock? No, it sounds like a very attractive movie. Well, Sandra Bullock gets kidnapped from a gas station. Kiefer Sutherland, he goes in to like, I don't know, buy M&M's, something, whatever. <laughs> he comes back out, she's gone. The car's empty, there's no sign of her. She's just disappeared. Mm -hmm. And so he kind of goes on this compulsive voyage or journey over the next decade or however. It consumes his entire life, his personal relationships, his finances. He just has to know, he has to know, he has to know. And so the moment he kind of decides to start tearing down the posters off of his wall, tear the map off of his wall, just lose his interest in the whole thing, the kidnapper comes out of nowhere. He contacts him and says, if you want to find out, you have to go through the exact same thing that she went through. And so Kiefer has this question, this, or I should say this decision that he has to make. Does he make this choice just to find the answer? Does he put himself in the vulnerable position, vulnerable position of putting himself in the hands of this potential murderer just to find out what happened to his ex? Or does he move on with his life? What would you do? Oh, I'd throw up. You just, just, I would, just I hurl would, right I would just there. hinge right <laughs> over, throw up everything, and then be like, I'm good. That's what do my you think answer. Lorene's mom would have done? Ooh, I think she would have done anything. She would have done anything. She definitely would have done anything. Well, the movie was rough because he, he drugs him, and then Kiefer wakes up six feet underground, buried alive. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. so I, I won't ruin the ending for anybody up. who uh, gonna, who wants to watch up. this old, obscure 90s film. But nonetheless, yeah, sometimes we'll do anything just to know. Well, I'm desperate to know which of our stories is going to emerge victorious. I don't want to campaign here, but mine does have chewed off fingertips. Ugh, it's true. I thought my mysteriously unscrewed light bulbs were a mood, but you have frozen finger stubs and that bodes poorly for me. If you're listening to this episode after May 2020, sorry, but voting is closed. That said, you can stalk us to vote in future episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Human Fuckery Podcast. You can also follow any of those accounts for weird factoids, wild photos, and weekly reports extracted from the annals of human history. Until then, stay safe, keep it kind, and please stay weird. <laughs>